Good morning to you. Back in the 80s, the Beastie Boys sold a lot of records telling us we got to fight for our rights. Twisted Sister, led by Dee Snyder, hit a nerve when they urged with big hair and big guitar riffs and pounding drums, we've got the right to choose it. There ain't no way we'll lose it. We're right, we're free, we'll fight, you'll see. We're not going to take it anymore. It's not just bad boy rockers firing up teenagers who want us to fight for our rights. Our country was founded on, uh, by folks who told King George that we have certain inalienable rights and we were not about to cede them. And today's political discourse is predicated on everything being a right. The right to health care, the right to a living wage, the right to free college tuition or whatever the situation. Now, whatever your thoughts are about the validity of those politics, the point is we as a culture are kind of obsessed about our rights. But for the next three Sundays, God's Word in 1 Corinthians 9 is going to call us to strategically give up our rights so that others aren't left out. Since this is so counterintuitive to the fallen human condition, we probably ought to pray before we even read Scripture today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are not like us. You are holy and holy other. You gave up your rights. You had the very throne of heaven and all of the angelic choir at your beckon. The universe exists because you called it forth through the power of your will as expressed through your word, and in an instant, it came from nothing into everything. And yet, you chose, as we narrow into Christmas, to incarnate, to leave heaven and come to earth to experience the privation and paucity that is the limitation of the human condition so that we could receive salvation, justification, that we could be made right with God. We had a problem that none of us could solve, and so you solved it for us, for you so loved the world, you gave your one and only begotten Son. Lord, today, as we look at 1 Corinthians, a book that we've become sadly ignorant of in the modern church, as we patiently and carefully go bit by bit, verse by verse, passage by passage through your message to us. We pray today that you would recalibrate us away from clinging to our rights and to start being Christ-like and leaving our rights that others might not be left. That we might, for the sake of the gospel and the good of our neighbor, be like our Savior and voluntarily, sacrificially, intentionally, and even repeatedly give up our rights for the sake of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his fame. We're so glad he came. Amen. So the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 9, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? 
If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we have even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded those who would proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. He has to do this. He's compelled to preach. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my rights in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. He's not a martyr. He's a missionary. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law. Meaning, he'll do what needs to be to not cause offense, but he doesn't understand himself as having to be under that law to be righteous. That I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, the, the, the heathens, the pagans, uh, I became as one outside of the law. Not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Meaning, I will behave in front of them in ways they understand, and they're not offended by, but I won't offend God in the process. Why? That I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That's our text for the next three Sundays. Now there's a saying, maybe you've heard it, the saying is that money makes the world go round. And it certainly makes the music world go round. Let me show you what I mean. Pink Floyd made a pretty penny with a song entitled Money. It begins with a fusion of the cash register going cha-ching, cha-ching, and the song chiming in, money, get away, get a good job with good pay, and you're okay. Now, if pop is not your thing, the notorious B.I.G. made a lot of money with his song, Mo' Money, Mo' Problems. A lot of notorious B.I.G. fans among the Norwegians today. Uh, <laughs> if you're not a fan of rap, maybe country is your thing. Willie Nelson got a number one hit with, If you got the money, honey, I got the time. Now that's picking up, I can hear. Uh, maybe you're more of a classic rock kind of person. If so, the Steve Miller Band urges you, ooh, ooh, take the money and run. Today, the Apostle Paul takes us to a subject that causes preachers to squirm, and some saints would rather skip. The subject is money, ministers, and ministry. Money, ministers, and ministry. And Paul makes five points in the first 18 verses on this matter. And he's going to spend the bulk of these verses relentlessly reasserting his rights. And then surprisingly, he's going to completely advocate these rights for the sake of the gospel. And the first thing in 1 Corinthians 9 that we need to know today is this. Number one, in your outlines and your bulletin, Paul had every right afforded a gospel minister. Paul had every right to every right afforded to a gospel minister. Paul had every right 
to every right that was afforded any gospel minister. You see this in the very first verse. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? And if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, Corinthians, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense for those who would examine me. Now you got to remember, the Corinthians are very enamored with their freedoms, right? They're like the Americans of the New Testament. And, and their slogan in the previous chapter that they would loudly banter was, all things are lawful for me. That is, I'll do whatever I want that I can get away with. But Paul is going to say, yeah, everything's lawful for you, but not everything is beneficial. So that is, even in our freedoms, we need to exercise our freedoms with wisdom because freedom without wisdom will lead us to bondage. Paul readily admits that as Christians, we have certain freedoms. He says, you have them, Corinthian church? And if you have them, Paul says, well, then I have them as well. In fact, as a gospel minister, Paul has additional freedoms than the average Christian. And as an apostle, he has even more. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? So Paul bears the marks of an apostle. He could perform the confirming signs and wonders that Scripture says an apostle must be able to do. Uh, Paul has the credentials of an apostle. He has seen the risen Christ in Acts chapter 9. Paul has the commission of an apostle. In Acts 9, the Lord Jesus commissioned Paul to be a missionary to the Gentiles. You'll be my apostle to the Gentiles. And the Corinthians themselves, they knew these truths, not coldly and propositionally and theoretically, but friends, they knew them personally and intimately. Are not you, Corinthian church, my workmanship in the Lord, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. Because he was their church planter that established the work. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And this is my defense to those who would examine me. So Paul, Paul had every right to every right that was afforded a gospel minister. Now we come to point two. Gospel ministers have the right to financial support. To adequate to meet their needs. Uh, gospel ministers have the right to financial support adequate to meet their needs. And we see this principle very clearly in verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? To eat and drink. Now at a minimum, if you're going to stay alive, you need food and drink. And on one level, it is true that you and I work in order to eat. At Thanksgiving, we should know this. This was a pretty low response. Indeed, the Bible goes so far to say, if a man will not work, then he shall not. Oh. In like manner, gospel workers have a right to remuneration for their contribution to the congregation. Literally, the right is to receive food and drink for their labor in the gospel. Now, now food and drink is what grammar nerds call a synecdoche. Do you remember high school grammar? Synecdoche is when a part is substituting for a whole. And so uh, Paul says food and drink, and he's saying that part is standing in for a whole. Food and drink specifically through synecdoche, the, the gospel minister has a right to financial support that's adequate for what? For their basic needs. Housing, food, drink, health care, a vehicle to get them around, those kind of things. So thus in verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and to drink? And so God's plan is for God's worker to labor diligently in the work of the Lord. And, and the Lord will meet the legitimate needs of that gospel worker through what? Through whom he labors. That's the plan of God. Uh, put another way, uh, God's plan is for God's man to work faithfully in the gospel, making disciples, and God's people shall share all good things with those who teach. That's what Galatians 6.6 6 says. Share all good things with those who teach. In, in 1 Timothy 5.17, the Bible says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching, in teaching. Now, the first honor accorded to all elders is respect. They're to be appreciated and respected 
by the congregation. The double honor, scholars say, is remuneration, especially if they're the teaching elder, if they preach and teach well and they govern God's house well. So the minister's basic needs are to be met, but what about his wife and kids? There's a certain type of, of stingy saint who, who penny pinches so hard that he makes Abe Lincoln cry, and he's going to try to squeeze this text to say this. Well, maybe we got to feed the preacher because he feeds us. But his wife should work, and maybe the kids. And the Bible anticipated, dear old Scrooge McSaint. Which brings us to point three. Gospel ministers have the right to financial support sufficient to enable their wives to not have to work, but instead to focus on being a vital helpmeet to the gospel worker in the work of the ministry. Let's say that again. Gospel workers have the right to financial support sufficient to enable their wives not to have to work, but instead to focus on being a vital helpmeet to the gospel worker. This comes from verse 5. It's very clear. Do we not have the right to take along a what? A believing wife. As do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. So, so Peter took along a believing wife. Uh, the other apostles took along a believing wife. And how did they feed that believing wife? Well, through the congregations in which they ministered. Peter, whose Aramaic name was Cephas, apparently brought his wife to Corinth. And when he ministered at Corinth, the church at Corinth supported him to such an extent that he could handle having his believing wife alongside him in ministry. This apparently was the practice of all the apostles and of the brothers of the Lord. Now let's just say that again. And of the brothers of the Lord. That means the Lord had... Brothers. So we need to do a little bit of theology, because this is one of those verses that people go, wait, read that again. I want you to notice two things theologically from this little verse, and then we'll get to the application and implication that's for us today. But two pieces of theology. The first is, I want you to notice the apostles had wives, and so did the Lord's brothers. It was normal for those in ministry that most of the time, in most cases, the minister wouldn't be single and celibate, he'd be married. So anybody who tells you otherwise is saying something otherwise from Corinthians. Now, you don't have to have a wife. Paul didn't have a wife. Barnabas didn't have a wife. Jesus didn't have a wife. But if you had a wife, she was supposed to be what kind of wife? A believer. That's a minimum. Okay? So clearly, the New Testament does not require clergy to be celibate, but rather it encourages them to be married if that's God's plan. But they must be married to a believer, mind you. Okay. The second piece of theology we need to see from verse 5 is notice that Jesus had brothers. Jesus had brothers. Verse 5. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as to the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Now, friends, the Bible tells us that Mary is the most blessed among women. Why? Because she was chosen to be the Lord's mother, and that's a high privilege. Uh, but she and Joseph had a normal marriage. And that marriage bore other children after the Lord Jesus was born. They did not consummate their marriage until after Jesus' birth. But after that, they had a normal marriage in all the normal respects, which we've already covered in Corinthians. We're speaking in euphemism. And guess what? When you have a normal marriage, a normal product of a normal marriage is children. Oh, and so in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, write it in your Bibles next to 1 Corinthians 9, 5. In Mark 6, 3, the people of Nazareth said, this is the people of the town Jesus grew up in, is this not the carpenter, speaking of Jesus, the son of Mary, and here it is, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? Do you know what that means? Jesus wasn't an only child. Jesus had other brothers and apparently sisters. We know this also from Galatians 1.19. You can write that in your Bibles. Galatians 1.19 speaks of James and calls him the Lord's brother. Okay, So this impacts our theology depending on where we come from. And we always need to come from the Scriptures and not from our tradition or ecclesiology or denomination, but from the Word of God. So the idea that Mary is a perpetual virgin, that's not scriptural. And the idea that, that she's a co-redemptrix with Christ. I've been in some churches where there's Jesus and, and, and Mary is bigger and more prominent than Jesus and people are praying to Mary and not to Jesus. But that's not biblical, friends. Hebrews 10 couldn't be clearer. We have access to the Father through what? Through the blood of Jesus. Nobody else is mentioned. 
We have access to the Father through the blood of Jesus. In Hebrews 4, which could not be clearer, the Bible says Jesus is our great high priest. And there's never any other mention of anyone else we should be praying to. Hebrews 7 could not be clearer. Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus does this. Not Mary, not the saints, not anybody but Jesus. Friends, Acts 4 could not be clearer. Jesus is the only name under heaven by which we may be. So who do you need to pray to? Jesus. Who do you need to believe in? So 1 Corinthians 9.5 is chock full of important theology. We haven't even gotten to the application. So now to that application that deals directly with our subject today. The application of 1 Corinthians 9.5 is this. The gospel worker who got his living from gospel work was supposed to be able to support his wife and kids sufficiently so that his wife does not have to work. Do we not have the right, verse 5, to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles? and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? What's he saying? That he doesn't have to take a secondary job because the gospel is his job. And he takes along a believing wife, and she didn't have to have a job because she was to come alongside him if she's laboring alongside him. Now let me tell you, first of all, that many pastors' wives do work, and there's certainly nothing prohibiting that in the Bible. That's nothing wrong if you're a pastor's wife and God calls you to work. That's fine. You are welcome to do so. You have freedom to do so. But a church ought not assume when they hire a pastor, they shouldn't assume the pay packet is such that the wife has to work, that she must work or they cannot eat. That would be to underpay the pastor based on Scripture. So, so gospel ministers have the right to financial support sufficient to enable their spouse to focus on being a vital helpmeet in the work of the ministry. And I'm grateful to the saints of Calvary. See, remember, I'm leaving, so this is not a paycheck question for me. I'm leaving anyway. <laughs> the next guy might benefit from this, but I'm not gonna. I'm just in 1 Corinthians 9. I didn't write the Bible, but I will unflinchingly preach it. You with me? Okay, two of us are uncomfortable today. All right, But I didn't write it, I just preached it. So here we are. Let's think about this. I am grateful to God for the saints of Calvary Church that have understood this principle because you have paid me sufficiently to allow Kim to not have to work. And so she has chosen not to work. We had opportunities along the way for Kim to work and we ended up praying that no, we're going to turn down the money because we wanted to be able to deploy Kim in Calvary Church. It's enabled her to lead ladies' Bible studies, to serve in the nursery, to be in the prayer team, to be at our prayer meetings, to bake uh, goodies for the elders' meetings. So if our elders are a little fatter, she had a portion of that. Uh, Kim has been at home, and you don't know this, but there are days where I get overwhelmed here and things happen here, and I get a phone call here, I get an email here, I get a challenge here, and I've gone home in the middle of the workday and I've prayed with Kim for you when I've been stymied and I don't know what to do. And, and Kim has been my helpmeet. She's given me excellent biblical counsel. Kim actually has an undergrad uh, from Moody Bible Institute. But Kim sees the world intuitively, and I see the world logically. And with both, it's a very helpful thing. Uh, Kim is far more relationally adept, where I am much more inept. That's why people like Kim more than me. <laughs> and, and, and so in 25 years, Kim has been a wonderful helpmeet to help me minister to you in ways I would have missed. And that's just a fact, Jack. Oh, that all of God's churches understood 1 Corinthians 9.5 so that men of God would be released to have their helpmeets available if that is what God called them to do. Thank God that you guys have been gracious in that situation. I want to say again, just in case you have a, a bent towards legalism, there is nothing wrong with a pastor's wife working. And many ladies are called into vocation and they love their vocation. They don't want to give up their vocation. That's okay. But that should be what the Lord leads that couple. That shouldn't be what the church's pay demands of that couple. Do you understand? That's all I want you to hear from that. Okay, that brings us to point four. Point four is this. Gospel ministers are not expected to be bivocational. That situation is exceptional, not normative. That situation is exceptional, not normative. Do you know what bivocational means? It means you have two jobs. What does that mean in church ministry? It means you pastor a church and everything that that requires, but then you do something else. You pump gas all week so you can feed your family, right? Bivocational, all right? So I want you to look at verse 6. Because the Bible teaches in point 4 that gospel ministers are not expected to be bivocational. That situation is exceptional. It is not normative. 
Verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? That is, Paul and Barnabas were unusual. They tent-maked. They did something to earn bread while they shared in the church. But that wasn't normal. Everyone else didn't do it that way. Paul made tents to pay rents. And apparently Barnabas took no remuneration from the Corinthian congregation. But they both had the right to do so. They chose to waive their rights. The church at Corinth already had a litany of those in ministry who had been previously sufficiently compensated so they did not have to work bivocationally. Apollos didn't, nor did Cephas. We know this is true because the Bible tells us so in verse 12. Verse 11 says, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Meaning other people have been paid and we chose not to be paid. Verse 12 is the smoking gun. Friends, bivocational work is a special calling of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought to have nothing but respect for that hardworking gospel worker, that pastor who toils all week at the workshop so that he can then feed the saints on Sunday in situations where that's the only way for the church to happen. But we also need to understand, my friends, that that, that kind of bivocational situation is, is exceptional, and in a local congregation it ought to be temporary. And yet some churches have grown so comfortable that they have become unbiblical because their pay is intentionally unlivable, so their pastors are unable to give themselves fully to the work of the ministry. And those congregations need to grow up and stretch and sacrifice. Now sadly, I wish this wasn't true, but I heard some saints at some broken down churches, I've heard this more than once in 25 years of ministry, and it always breaks my heart, where some saint says, we keep the pastor poor, so God will keep him humble. I've heard that from more than one person in more than one church. Thank God not at our church, and thank God not at any church where I was the pastor. Friends, I want to tell you that is the exact opposite of what this scripture teaches. The scripture teaches that we're to share all good things with those who teach, Galatians 6.6. 6. And Paul is going to lay down an arsenal of examples to blow up that kind of stinking thinking. And the first is letter A today. Letter A is this. Gospel ministers ought to be adequately resourced to fight the good fight like soldiers. Gospel ministers ought to be adequately resourced so they can fight the good fight like soldiers. The Bible says it this way. Who serves as a soldier? And what's the rest of the sentence? Who serves as a soldier? Reading. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? We're going to try that again. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? You know what that means? Think about it. Sailors don't purchase their own submarines, do they? Airmen don't buy the fuel for their fighter jets. Marines don't purchase their M16s or their 782 gear. Ministers are going to need certain equipment to do their jobs. And for many ministers, that involves a functional computer to write sermons or a number of books and commentaries to be able to get more out of those, uh, understanding of those sermons. It it may involve additional training uh, where they're lacking. It could be formal training, getting another degree, a master's or a doctorate. Uh, it, It could be informal training where we send them to a conference or some place where they're going to grow in some area to sharpen their thinking or keep current on where new heresies are developing in the church. This is also true for those who serve outside the local church but serve abroad. Uh, Missionaries might need a a reliable, heavy-duty vehicle because they serve in a country where mechanics and plentiful spares are not easy to find. Other missionaries may be in countries where they need a 4x4, and it's not a luxury. It's because there aren't very many good roads, and the non-roads are better than driving on the roads. (laughs) And you need a vehicle that can make a road. So the question as we get to this portion of the passage is, how are we resourcing those God is calling? Are we equipping God's army adequately to fight the good fight, or are we skimping on God's infantry? Because we'd rather have it better in our world, in our homes. We'd rather remodel the kitchen than reach the nations. These are questions we have to ask. doesn't mean we can't remodel the kitchen. If the Lord gives you the freedom to do that, do that. But I'm just saying our impulse is always to make more of what we have when God has called us to reach the nations for Jesus Christ. Now, I'm really grateful that I'm preaching this at Calvary Church because Calvary Church has been really good at this principle. 
Calvary Church, for me personally, uh, you may or may not know this, depends on how much you read the budget, but Calvary Church gives me a stipend each year to pastor's library, and I buy texts and tools and software, and I'm very grateful for that, and you benefit from that because I use those texts and tools and software to help you better understand the Word of God. Did you know when we moved here, you know, we weren't planning on being your pastor. You remember that, right? And, and so team had asked us to go to Australia and serve as a missionary in Australia after we'd been in Zimbabwe for eight years. So we were going to Australia. You had me preach at your missions conference. And I, I preached uh, two sermons. At the end of it, you said, come be our pastor. And we said no. And God had a laugh. And like 90 days later, I was your pastor. Like that's how that worked. And uh, we didn't go to Australia. God had another plan. Do you remember what we had when we came here? We had nine suitcases. We gave up everything we left when we left Zimbabwe all of our furniture, all of our stuff, we had nothing. And uh, we came to Calvary Church unexpectedly to be your pastor. We didn't know that was how that was going to work. And you all gave us a parsonage, and it was empty, because that's how parsonages work. And that parsonage is no longer empty. You gave us a shower. Uh, some of you worked in a thrift store, and you found eagle-eyed saints look for different things that we could put in to put, uh, I think, our, our, our uh, eat-in kitchen table and one of our couches. And you, you guys really helped us get our house up and running. Calvary Church has been very good about blessing those who share the Word of God with them. We're very good, I think, in our missionaries, in how we bless our missionaries. When missionaries in residence land with us, someone arranges a lift from the airport, usually in a church van, drives all the way out to, you know, they never come to Newark, do they? Those missionaries are stinkers. They always get the, they're always like, we want to go to the, can you get us in Philly? Like, it's always far away. And Philly's an hour less drive than JFK, isn't it? Anyway, um, my experience. We take a church van, and somebody goes and they pick them up, because missionaries always have like 100 suitcases, and, and, and sometimes 100 kids, depending on the missionary. And, uh, and then when they get here, I don't know if you know this, because not everybody understands how Calvary works, but someone hands them the keys to a fully gassed missions car. It's a, it's a Ford Taurus you sometimes see around here. And Ron Kelsey, who's a mechanic, has meticulously gone over that Taurus to make sure everything works, and the missionary then has wheels to get around and tell people about what God is doing in their country. The missions committee uh, puts groceries over at the parsonage, um, and they come with a fridge that has food in it. They've just landed, they're jet-lagged, they've come from across the world, uh, their kids are tired, and, and, and there's groceries. And, and the missions committee understands if, you know, you like orange juice with or without pulp. They, they really do try to know what, the, I mean, it's really amazing. Um, they land and they go into this, this apartment, uh, this, this parsonage, and it's got, it's fully furnished down to cups and plates and knives and forks and car seats and cribs, and it's pretty amazing. They find out what you need and they, they fill it. What a blessing. Amen? If you didn't know Calvary Church does that, well, I want you to know that's what Calvary Church does. May we continue to be a church that well resources kingdom workers so that we live out 1 Corinthians 9-7 in the years to come. Because the Bible teaches that gospel workers ought to be adequately resourced to fight the good fight like soldiers. That brings us to letter B. Letter B. Gospel ministers ought to expect a share in the return in God's vineyard they're tending. Gospel workers ought to expect a share in the vineyard that they're tending. This comes from verse 7. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? So Some of you go outside and you plant a garden. And I'm sure what you do is you give all that food away. You never eat a single tomato, potato, or whatever, right? No, you eat something. Even if you give most of it away, you eat something. And that's what they're saying. Who plants a vineyard without any eating its fruit? Brings us to point C. Gospel ministers ought to expect a share in the blessings of the hard labor of shepherding. Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So gospel ministers ought to expect a share of the blessing of the hard labor that happens in shepherding. Now, there are people that exploit these truths. You know what we call them in the Bible? Wolves. There are people that fleece the sheep. There are people that eat the sheep. However, it is biblically true that hardworking, godly gospel workers are supposed to partake in the fruit of their hard work. So, yes, there are wolves, and we remove them. And yes, there are fleecers of the sheep, and we need to identify them and move them out. But that doesn't deny that we still need to have diligent shepherds benefiting from their diligence in making the king's flock thrive. Why? Because God doesn't just care about his work. He cares about his worker. True for you, right? He calls you to do things, and he wants to keep you sane and joyful and not collapsing because you've never had a Sabbath rest in the work. And the same is true for full-time workers. In God's word, even the beasts 
a burden were cared for, how much more so do you think he feels about the servants of the king? If even the beasts of burden are cared for, how much more do you think he cares about the servants of the king? Well, that brings us to letter D, you see. Letter D is this. The Old Testament sets the example in this, even in how God urges us to treat our beasts. The Old Testament sets the example in this, even in how God encourages us to treat our beasts. Look at verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority, or doesn't the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads the grain. It is for oxen that God is concerned? No. Does he certainly not speak for our sake? So you have this oxen, and he's attached to this uh, center piece, and they're treading the grain, and he's going around with a, with a threshing sledge, and he's uh, threshing the grain, and you're not supposed to put a bag over his mouth so he can't eat. He can eat while he's working. The idea is he's working for you, and he ought to get a share in that. And Paul says, do you think God really wrote that just because he cared about animals? He does care about animals, so if Pete is listening, it's in there, but it's not primarily about animals. There's more to the story. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? Paul is saying, hey, you know, this stuff about supporting workers uh, as they labor, this is not a new truth. This is in keeping with all the existing truth in the Word of God. Way back in Deuteronomy 25.4, God demonstrated He cares for the oxen in the field. And God's concern was not just for the beast, it was for more than the beast. For through this verse, God is going to give us a principle as His people. Specifically, how we ought to minister to our minister. And that brings us to point E. Point E today. Normal labor sets the example. Normal labor sets the example in how plowmen plow and threshers thresh in the hope of a share of the crop. Say that again. Normal labor sets the example in how plowmen plow and threshers thresh in hopes of sharing in the crop. Verse 10. It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in what? In hope. And the thresher should thresh in what? In hope. What kind of hope? In a hope of sharing the crop. In a hope of sharing the crop. The gospel worker labors in hope. Jason, you need to labor in hope. I think you're in ministry with too, my friend. You need to labor in hope because sometimes it feels a little hopeless. They're not changing. <laughs> And, 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 you know, discipleship is like watching redwoods grow from day to day. It doesn't seem like much is happening, but if you're going to make oaks of righteousness, that's how it works. You need to labor in hope. When you teach that Sunday school class, that small group, those young people, when you, when you burn brownies with the pioneer girls, you're laboring in hope. You're praying in hope. The gospel worker labors in hope. He plants seeds, hoping for souls to be saved. He waters believers, looking to see them strengthened into reproducing disciples. And he does this in hope of eternal fruit and eternal reward, but the text also tells us that the vocational worker, the Christian worker in vocational ministry, he also labors not just in eternal hope, but even also in a temporal hope, the hope that his family's needs will be met for his investment in Jesus Christ among those people. And so God's people have the opportunity. God's people have the high calling of being a blessing by sharing all good things with those who teach. Galatians 6.6. 6. I want to tell you again, Calvary Church has been excellent about this. Thank you for all the times you've shared in the gospel crop for my family. You've done that in a myriad of ways. You've done that through very generous Christmas uh, bonuses. You've done that through inviting me to your homes for Thanksgiving and Christmas, taking us to baseball games. You've shared, you know, Paul said, I didn't just share the gospel, but I shared my life as well. And I thank you for all those times that we've been more than just a functional minister, but a friend that you've loved. And I encourage you as the next guy comes, do that too. Because that's biblical. Otherwise, it's very cold and very far from the parsonage to your hearts. Which brings us to letter F. What was true for beastly workers and field workers was true for temple workers, both in the Lord's temple and even in the pagan's temple. Say that again. What was true for beastly workers and field workers was true for temple workers, both in the Lord's temple and even in the pagan's temple. We see this in verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial 
offering. See, even the pagans understood this. Those who worked at the pagans' temple, well, they got their food from their labor at the pagan temple. And so, true it was, so too it was true of God's priests, because when God's priests labored in the temple, what did they get? They got a share of the sacrifice. Those who served at the altar got a share in what was offered at the altar. And why does a portion of our giving go to support our pastors and their families? You ever wondered that? Like, we're expensive. You could take us out, and we'd have a lot more money. Just stop paying that guy. He's expensive, and that guy's expensive. and We might have nicer stuff around here. Well, why does a portion of our giving go to support our pastors and their families? And the answer is because it's God's plan. And it's been so in every era in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest, and Abraham gave a tenth. The Levites earned their meat from the people's offerings. God's workers are to feed God's people spiritually, and the Bible says then God's people are to feed God's workers materially. Otherwise, the pastor will have to stop putting time into preaching and teaching, and he'll have to pump more gas. And the kingdom of God will run out of gas. Yeah, He's got a plan. It's a good plan. Let's follow it. That brings us to point G. What was true for Old Testament ministers is also true of New Testament ministers, according to Jesus Christ. What was true for Old Testament ministers is true of New Testament ministers, according to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. In the same way, the Lord, the Lord Jesus commanded that those who proclaim the gospel shall get their living by the gospel. This is God's plan, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, where did the Lord command this? He commanded this twice. He commanded this in Luke 9 and in Luke 10. And you might write Luke 9 and 10 next to verse 14. I want you to turn in just a second in the Word of God. In Luke 9, it's on page 1102 of the Blue Pew Bible. Luke 9, go there for a second because then we'll go to Luke 10 and they're right next to each other. 9 and 10, for those of you who didn't know those were next to each other. Luke 9 is on page 1102. Now Luke 9 is also spoken of in Matthew 10. And Matthew 10 gives us a chronology of this teaching. And Matthew 10 tells us this is just after Jesus has called out the 12 to be apostles. So I've named the 12 apostles, and then he's going to tell those 12 apostles this truth in Luke 9. And he called the 12 together, and he gave them power and authority over demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and do not have two tunics. How are they going to be supported then, friends? They were going to be supported by the Lord through the people to which they ministered. Now, the second time Jesus sends folks out is when he expands from just the 12 to a group of 72, he's going to send out two by two. But again, Jesus is going to make them utterly dependent on the provision of those to whom he is sending them to minister. In Luke 10, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are the few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And then when you go, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs amongst wolves. That is, it won't be easy. And I don't want you to provide for yourselves. I'm going to provide for you through the people that come to Christ. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if the Son of Peace is there, your peace will rest upon Him. But if not, it will return to you. Some people are going to reject it. You move on to the people that will listen. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. It isn't shop around to find the best house. Go to the blessed house and bless that house. Some won't bless you, and you'll need to move on. So Paul has just invested 14 verses so far in our text today, uh, clearly, patiently, tediously, but entirely scripturally, enumerating his numerous rights as a gospel minister. And now he comes to the unexpected bit in our passage. It's point five on our outlines, and friends, it is the big point in our sermon today. Point five. Paul waived his rights for remuneration for the sake of the gospel. Paul waived his rights for remuneration for the sake of the gospel. He says this, 
Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He says, I have this right, but I deliberately left it. I have this right, but I deliberately left it. Why? So that you would understand I'm here for your souls and not for your wallets. He goes on in the greater detail of his rationale for his denial of his rights in verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. He's not saying, by the way, I didn't use these rights, so you owe me a lot of money. That's not what he's saying. He says, I didn't take what is due me, and I'm not hinting around that you now owe me. Listen, For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For it is necessity laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I have to do this. This is what God's called me to do. For if I do this of my own will, well, then I have a reward. But if I don't do it of my own will, I'm still entrusted. I have these gifts, and I better use them because I'm going to be accountable for them. What then is my reward? Verse 18. Paul says that in my preaching that I may present the gospel free of charge. That was the special um, push that the Lord Jesus put on Paul's heart so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. Paul didn't take funds from folks even though he was a foundational church planter to them because he wanted no confusion that he was there to bring them to heaven, not himself to the bank. He was worried that as the first guy that ever shared the gospel to those people, they might be confused about his motives. Now, Paul was not against being financially supported in ministry. Paul thanked the Philippians when they gave him a gift. When he left them and went somewhere else, the Philippians sent him a gift so that other people could hear the gospel. Paul was willing to tent make if he needed to. He was willing to receive gifts if they wanted to give him, but he didn't try to take because he knew he was the first person sharing in all the places he was going. In 2 Corinthians 11.8, Paul makes it clear that he took funds from other Christians so he could take the gospel to other places. 2 Corinthians 11.8 says, I preach God's gospel to you free of charge. And I robbed other churches, meaning they paid by accepting support from them in order to serve you. So, so here's a question. Why do missionaries raise support? And the answer is because there are parts of the world that either don't have a church or don't have the funds to have that worker if people like you didn't send them. People go, Sean, we give 26% of every dollar that comes in. Like, we could do a lot of things with that. We could have better dinners. Not that there's anything wrong with our dinners, but, you know, we always want something better, right? But we don't, because there are people that have no spiritual food. You follow? It's going to take sacrifice to build the kingdom of God. And that's how it's been from the days of Acts, and that's how it's going to be until the Lord returns and there's no longer a need to send out evangelists and missionaries. Now, you've got to remember, Corinth was one of the wealthiest cities in the ancient world. Cephas and Apollos and the Lord's brothers rightly took from the church's coffers, but Paul and Barnabas didn't. Not because they could not, but because they chose not to. Why? For the sake of the gospel. And this decision, friends, made Paul's life much harder than it needed to be, and yet he gladly did it. Did you know you have many rights too, Christian? You have many rights. And sometimes you're going to make those left for the sake of those who need Jesus. If you're going to see other people become brothers and sisters in Christ, there are things you could do. It's lawful, but it's not helpful. It's not beneficial. You're going to have to choose to forego your legitimate gospel freedom so someone else can meet Jesus. Now, I know somebody who was a pretty good example in this. He's talked about in Philippians 2. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before Him endured the cross. How do you look at the cross with joy if you understand that today's pain is nothing in light of the glory of forever? Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before Him endured the cross. And our attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to or grasped. But Jesus made Himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That's why we have Christmas. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, one of the most painful, public, and protracted ways to die. And so to us, our Lord who lived it says to us, his children, he says, take up your and follow Friends, each day in a myriad of ways, we're going to have to learn to die to self that others might live for Christ, that others might become brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'm going to ask you a question. Between you and the Holy Spirit, you think about it this week, this month, this year. What right is Jesus asking you to forsake for him? What good, not bad, what good is Jesus asking you to forgo for the better? Because the enemy of the best is the good. What kingdom worker is God asking you to resource by investing your time in prayer and your treasure in sacrifice that the gospel might go where there's less light and more need? To those ends, let's pray today. Lord Jesus, as we come upon Christmas, we're closing in. We're having this great big meal of thanksgiving because we're grateful that you've saved us. We're grateful that their family is still around the table. We're gonna, there are going to be people that come to Thanksgiving in homes this week and there's going to be a place missing. Grandpa is not there. Mom is not there. A child in the child's height chair is not there, but not in our house. You've been so gracious to us that that we've got all these people coming and we're trying to fill them with cranberry sauce. And we have so many options that we don't know whether it should be a, a gloppy jello out of a can or whether it should be real cranberries that are before us. People are going to choose between lumpy gravy and not lumpy gravy. We're going to choose between nine kinds of pie. We have so much because you're so good so consistently and we want to be thankful for that. But we also want to be mindful that others do not have. And what we have materially doesn't matter. Everything we have is going to burn. But what we have spiritually will survive. We will be resurrected into new life. Today, we will be with you in paradise. In, in, in the blink of an eye, in a, in a twinkling of, of an eye, we're going to be transformed. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you might help us this week to think about what rights would we forego so that someone else wouldn't be left out? What good might we leave on the table that the best, which is God's glory, and the gospel of Jesus Christ might go forth? May, may you show us how we might come alongside whomever in whatever way you desire. Maybe there's a person at the office that irritates us, but that person needs Jesus. And you might have us give up an occasional lunch to take them out, even though they're not necessarily who we would always want to be with in our flesh. But we want to build a bridge so that Jesus Christ might be known in their home. I don't know what you want us to do, but you do. May we be asking, and then may we be listening, and may we respond to your leading. May you do immeasurably more in us, with us, to us, through us, and in spite of us than we could ask or imagine. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.